0: Now that we come to the time of worship, I want to share with you a message that I've titled, The One We've Been Waiting For. And I'm going to to break this into two parts. Uh, Ultimately, I was originally going to try to preach through 17 verses of the, the Gospel of Luke this week, just to see if that would be a nice Halloween scare for all of you, for a guy who goes at my pace of preaching through the Scriptures to take that big of a chunk off. But ultimately, I became too scared myself, so... Now we're going to focus on verses 18 through 23. So Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, find your way to Luke chapter 7. And I want to share with you about a story that I heard about a good old boy who won a trip to a Caribbean island through his local supermarket. He was excited to travel away from his home for the first time ever. He'd never been out of his home state. and So he was a little bit anxious, as you can might imagine, when it came to riding a plane for the first time, and he had these concerns, these doubts about whether or not this aircraft was going to be able to carry him over to this Caribbean island where he would then enjoy the prize that he had won. And his mom and his pa were pretty excited about this opportunity as well. So first thing that happened once he got off of the plane, his phone started to ring and there were mom and pa. They're on the other end of the line. They wanted to know how did this flight go for you? our son. And he said, well, Mom and Paul, it was a pretty good flight. It wasn't quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. But my arms are tired and my legs are exhausted and my back is really just worn out and hurting. Well, Mom and Paul were a little bit confused, as you might imagine. So they said, son, why are you so worn out? And that good old boy said, well, I just ain't real sure about how well they build those here flying machines. So I did my best not to put all my weight down on the thing while we were up in the air. <laughs> and you know, when we're unsure about something that's meant to hold us up, we are hesitant to put all of our weight into it. Now, for something like an airplane, keeping the weight off of the seat for fear that the aircraft couldn't tolerate the rest of our weight, it would be a pretty foolish sort of thing, right? The aircraft would have to absorb that weight in some other way throughout the remainder of, of the, the fuselage of the aircraft there. But the, the same thing is true when it comes to Christianity. Those of us who are Christians have entrusted our lives to one who has promised to carry us into heaven. And yet many Christians have uncertainties. We have anxieties. We have things which cause us to refuse to put all of our full weight into what God is calling us to do. And what we may not realize is that God is carrying us along just the same. In the midst of trials and tribulations and heartaches and pains, when the believer grows confused and concerned and weary and uncertain, God continues to move his plan along until those who've committed themselves themselves to him ultimately arrive safely to their eternal destination. And today in our study of Luke, as we come to Luke chapter 7, verse 18, we encounter someone who had fully entrusted his life, his work, his ministry to what the Lord was calling him to do. This man had thrown all of his weight into serving God's kingdom. He was exemplary in that. He had left his family and his friends. And he had moved out into the desert to be on mission with for God. He didn't even take time to concern himself with the finer things that he might eat as he's living out in the desert. No, this man ate wild grasshoppers and drank wild honey. This was his meal as he was purely devoted to the work of the Lord. But ultimately, the ride, the ministry That this man was called to did not go quite as smoothly as he thought that it would. And the man I'm talking about, of course, is a man we've already encountered in the book of Luke. His name is John the Baptist. We call him that because of the ministry that he carried out. Was ultimately baptizing individuals in this visible display of what he called them to do as they prepared the way for the Lord. This sign of repentance that they were turning away from their sins to be prepared So he was the baptizer, baptizing those who came in order to repent, in order to prepare the way for the Lord. And John had lived quite a life of godly service to this point. I mean, we've seen a good bit of that already in the book of Luke. He was born due to these miraculous circumstances to parents who were well along in their years back in Luke chapter 1. As we looked at that back at Christmas of last year. If you remember, the angel of the Lord appeared to his father, Zechariah, and he told him that his mother, who was Elizabeth, would have a son who would turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. This angel of the Lord also promised that this son would go on as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and the power of another great prophet that we mentioned briefly last week, whose name was Elijah. And John the Baptist would go on as a prophet, preparing the way for the Lord. This would be his ministry. And after John was miraculously born, as this angel had promised, we encounter John the Baptist again in Luke chapter 3. That's where ultimately his ministry begins. We read that the word of the Lord came to him, and he began his ministry by going into all the areas around this Jordan River preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And friends, I just want to tell you, this must have been some ministry because people were flocking to John from all around. As a matter of fact, we even read in the book of Acts, and it must have been maybe 20 years after John's ministry, that some of those who are out on an evangelistic campaign encounter some of the disciples of John who've heard about John's baptism, but they have not yet heard about Jesus's Baptism, with all of its acclaim and the way it turned the world upside down. These individuals were still spread abroad having been a part of John's ministry and yet not hearing of Christ until ultimately the gospel is shared with them. But John made it clear that he was not the focus of his ministry. No matter how prominent that ministry might have been, no matter how many individuals might have been coming from all the areas around, instead, John warned the people of a coming judgment. He pointed people to the one who would come after him. Here's what John said in Luke chapter chapter 3, verse 16. When the people were wondering in their hearts, ultimately, because of his prominent ministry, if maybe John himself was the Christ, they were wondering these things, and we read in, in Luke 3.16, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, Israel had long been waiting for this one who was coming after John. In fact, all of humanity had ultimately been waiting for this one. Even back in the Garden of Eden, when mankind first fell, we have what we know as the Proto-Evangelion, this first proclamation of the gospel, where, where ultimately, as God issues the curse, he gives with it this promise that one day, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The expectation, my friends, is there. It is rich even at the dawn of creation, even from the Garden of Eden. And yet as time moved along, God revealed more and more about his plan to send one who would ultimately right all of humanity's wrongs. Through Abraham, God revealed that this one would bless all people and would grant to the people of faith a permanent possession of Land. Then through King David, God revealed that this coming one would be a descendant of David who would build a house for the Lord's name and who would rule in this kingly line of David's ancestors on a throne that would never end. That he himself would be a son of the Almighty. These promises were proclaimed in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there were numerous prophets who foretold all that this coming would be and all that this coming one would do. He would bring the Lord's favor, but he would also bring a great day of judgment, which would crush the Lord's enemies. And so there were a lot of expectations that were swirling around about this one that all of humanity ultimately was waiting for. But in particular, God's chosen people. The nation of Israel had their eyes set on this one. And John the Baptist was a part of that nation. And he, along with all Israel, were waiting for this one, the coming Messiah, this coming king, who would bring deliverance and an eternal kingdom. And John knew that God had appointed for him to be the messenger who would announce the coming of that One, the awaited one, the expected one, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. And then one day, the day came when ultimately John encountered Jesus himself. We read about that encounter in John chapter 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And on that day, John baptized Jesus. Not not only did he baptize him, but ultimately, we read in the scriptures that even in that baptism, John saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Jesus. And he said of Jesus in John 1.34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. That's a pretty confident faith that John has in his ministry when Jesus is there in person. And at that time, John seemed to be pretty confident that the one who was promised to all of mankind in general and to the nation of Israel in particular had now arrived. He seemed to be absolutely certain that the expected one was there in his midst. But John's ministry came to an abrupt halt. You see, things didn't finish the way that John expected them to finish. We read in Luke chapter 3 verse 20. That the wicked king Herod locked John up in prison. Herod was punishing John because John had called Herod out. You see, Herod had this illicit affair with his own brother's wife. And John called him out for that. Well, kings don't tend to like to be called out for things. And some take it pretty poorly. Herod was a king who did that sort of thing. And so he had John locked away in prison. And so by the time we arrive at verse 18 of Luke chapter 7, John's in a pretty different sort of situation than he had been back when he originally announced Jesus' arrival. He's no longer enjoying the the fruits of a thriving ministry in the wilderness. Now instead he's locked away in the dungeons of the prison. And, And he's locked away under the authority of this wicked king. And so you might imagine, right, you think you're going through this ministry that's so faithful, so special, so called out by God, and then all of a sudden things turn south and you find yourself locked away in prison. On top of that, you see, John was had this expectation, as did much of Israel, that the coming Messiah, this Davidic king, this one who would sit on David's throne, would rule like David did. He would rule over a literal earthly nation in his coming. And yet, Jesus has been here in his ministry in Galilee for a good bit of time, and we don't see him driving out the Romans. We don't see him taking control of the nation, at least not in the political, physical sort of way that the Jews were expecting that their Messiah would carry these things out. Things weren't going as John had planned. And like happens with you and me so often, when things don't go according to our plans... Sometimes questions arise, right? You've been there, right, friend? Have you ever seen a time in your life when you tried to do everything you thought the Lord wanted you to do, but things just would not go in your favor? Have you ever encountered circumstances that left you wondering if maybe you don't quite have it all figured out the way that you thought you had it all figured out? Well, today I want to point you to the example Of the one that Jesus describes as the greatest man who ever lived. And I want you to see that this man found himself in a similar predicament that many of us find ourselves in when troubles arise. And We're going to look at the first set of verses that pertain to ultimately this expectation and this question of the one who is to come. Is this the one? Who we've been waiting for. So join me now in Luke chapter 7. We'll be beginning in verse 17 if you're able. I'd ask that you would stand. That we might together honor the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 7 beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples. John sent them to the Lord saying. Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, that is when they came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind and he answered and said to them go and report to John what you have seen and heard the blind receive sight the lame walk the lepers are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised up the poor have the gospel preached to them blessed is he who does not take offense at me here ends the reading of God's word you may be seated and so as we examine Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23 this morning, I want to I specifically draw your attention to the question that John the ba- Baptist asks in this passage. In fact, I believe that's what Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is striving to do in these verses. He's drawing our attention to this question. How do you know that? Well, ultimately... Not only does, does Luke record when, when John originally in the prison, in the dungeon, calls for his disciples and, and tells them the question that he wants them to, to go and ask Jesus themselves, but Luke records that same question again once the disciples come to Jesus and ask the question. And so there's a repeat of this question. It's as if Luke is saying, look, I want to draw your attention to this question because this is a most important question. This is a question that you need to consider as you're reading God's word. This is a question that you need to deal with. It was an important question for John. It's an important question for each and every one of you and for me. All of our eternity weighs on this one question. What's the question? Well, John asks Jesus, are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? Now that's a pretty shocking question to come from John, is it not? I mean, he is the forerunner of the Christ. He is the one who has had these great revelations of God that he has then proclaimed to individuals out in the wilderness. He has a very special ministry. He's already pointed to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, we think if anybody's got a handle on who the expected one is, we would think it's probably going to be John, right? And then the phrase that we see translated here, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what is this question that he's asking. The phrase translated the expected one here, in this this question, is literally the one who is to come. And when John asks, do we look for someone else? The word look for in the original Greek language could also be translated as wait for or expect. He's saying, are you the promised one? Are you the one that we should be waiting for? Are you the one that we should be expected? And when things don't pan out quite like he had planned, John asks Jesus, are you this one? Are you the one we've waited for? Are you the one our hopes are built on? That is, he's asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Messiah just means anointed one. When you talk about a kingly line, the king was anointed. The king was shown to be God's chosen one through this anointing process. Are you the Messiah? John wants to know. Are you as the king who is to come? Are you the savior? Are you the son of God who's been promised to us? friends, I just want to say there is a holy hunger in every human heart. God has placed this yearning within each and every one of us. Now some are a little bit better at suppressing that holy hunger than others. But as the troubles of life grow more intense, so does our longing that something greater than what we experience here on earth might come to pass. All of our hurts... All of our struggles, all of our tears, all of our toils, all of these things spring up within us, within this yearning for something that is greater. And we all at some point or another long for that which is greater than what we experience here on earth. And if you believe, my friends, as I do, that there is a God in heaven and that he has revealed his plans for mankind then you, my friends, know that all of history is headed somewhere. You are not just a biological coincidence. You, like I know, you know that God has promised a Redeemer. And if you trust in God's plans, then you expect that this one will do many things. And this one, my friends, is the one that we have been waiting for. John was waiting for him. And all of creation has an innate longing for him. All together, we long for this one that we have been waiting for. And the good news that Luke reveals to us in today's passage makes this clear to us. The one who we have been waiting for has come. Jesus is the one who we've been waiting for. Now that sounds a little bit like a Christmas message, doesn't it? I mean, typically when Christmas season comes around, that tends to be a a nice, quick message that we pastors can put together because there's so much expectation, so much longing in the nation of Israel. As they await this expected one, as they await this Messiah, the angels come and they speak of His coming. This is the fulfillment of the one you've been waiting for. Great miracles happen because of this longing and the confirmation of God that this is the one that you have been waiting for. But this passage is a reminder that the question of Jesus' coming did not stop with the nativity. The importance of this question goes beyond from generation to generation. And besides that, there's apparently this, this precedent for introducing Christmas material late in October. All right? So as I was sitting at the kitchen table preparing my message for today, I began to hear the little jingle of Christmas music from our living room TV. Well, a few minutes later, I just said, well, i would get up and go check things out. And sure enough, Hallmark has begun its Christmas movies. And so literally, my son and I, my oldest son... Went over and kissed my wife goodbye and said, We'll see you again once the new year rolls around because she loves those Hallmark Christmas movies. Here we are, at the end of October, and these pagans have already started showing Christmas movies. Well, ultimately it was my wife's birthday, so I didn't make too big of a deal out of it yesterday. I didn't complain too loud or too much, but still, there's a precedent there. And so we are talking through, ultimately, this message that might come up a lot around Christmas time, but it's a message that is pertinent for us at any season of the year. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, my friends. That's the message of the angels at Christmas. It's the message of the Gospel of Luke that this author presents for us through the questions of John the Baptist today. And I ask you this, are you uncertain, my friends, that Jesus is the one you've been waiting for? Well, with the remainder of our time here today, let's examine the first two of five expectations that we have of this one whom we've been waiting for and how Jesus ultimately meets those expectations. The first one is this, we've been waiting for the one who can answer our questions. You know what I mean? I mean, you go through the trials of life, you find yourself in the midst of certain circumstances, you say, why? Why? Why does this happen to me? Why why would there be an an accident that would involve a sweet young child? Why why would there be suffering in the midst of my life? Why this diagnosis in my life? Why why is this disease plaguing my body? Why, Why the great shooting that happens in the midst of a synagogue, senselessly killing 11 individuals? Why? Are all of these things taking place? And as I've already mentioned, John has questions about God's plans for his life. And God's plans ultimately for all of humanity. Because the circumstances in his life don't match the expectations he has for how he thought God was going to move. And so something triggers these questions. Now Luke simply records for us in verse 18 that the disciples of John reported to him about these things. What things are we talking about? Well, last week, in the verses that immediately precede this passage, we read about Jesus' compassionate work to raise the dead son of a widow. It was her only son, and Jesus saw her. Jesus had compassion, and through grace, not because of any request that she had made, Jesus raises this one from the dead, and he does that in this city called Nain. Nain was a city which was just over the hill. I mean, a walking, short walking distance away from the city of Shunem where another great prophet named Elisha had raised a widow's son from the dead. Ultimately, Elisha appealed to God and God did the raising of the dead as we talked about last week. But when these things happen, we read that the people come to this point where they are saying that a great prophet has come that's what we read in verse 16 they say a great prophet has arisen among us and then we read in verse 17 that that report traveled throughout Judea so we're in the northern area of Galilee when this miracle happens and this travels down into the area of Judea to the south and all the surrounding district according to verse 17 And it seems as though Jesus, by going to Nain and performing this work, is indeed showing the people that he is a great prophet. But he is much more than that, as we talked about last week. And that seems to be John's trouble in this moment. He was expecting Jesus to be much more than a prophet. But you see, the people got a misunderstanding about Jesus because of where Jesus had gone and the work that Jesus had done and how that was reflected in what Elisha did in the Old Testament. And so the people begin to explain Jesus as something less than the Messiah. That report makes its way throughout Judea, It comes to John, and John now has a a time of conflict to say, well, wait a minute, I was expecting him to be a lot more than that. So as this news comes to John, John starts to wonder if he has it all pieced together just right. And John arrives at a time of questioning. Now, I don't think that John is experiencing doubt so much as he's just struggling with the lack of his own omniscience we've all been there right i mean there are things that we just are not capable of understanding in our frail humanity and i believe that john is struggling with that here in this moment he's just a man who's received a word from god he does not have omniscience he doesn't know the mind of god he still has to take the facets of what he's seen and what he's heard and put them together to understand what god is doing So in this moment, I don't think John is questioning Jesus' abilities as much as he's questioning his own inability to comprehend what God is doing through Jesus. Now, why would I say that? Well, Luke gives us a few hints related to that. He shows us that John ultimately has this great trust in Jesus, even as these questions are kind of swirling around in his mind. John doesn't go to all the people who think that they've cornered the market on what Jesus is doing, in order to ask them what's going on. He doesn't go to those who have come to him saying that this great prophet, and, 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 and we think he's only a prophet, has arisen and is doing great things up in Galilee. He does, John doesn't go to those people. He takes his questions directly to Jesus. He goes straight to the source. And this shows a little bit of trust, right? I mean, if you didn't trust Jesus, why would you go and take this question to him? But John is showing that he trusts Jesus to give him the truth. Furthermore, Luke records that John, who couldn't go on his own because of his imprisonment, sent his two disciples to the, what's the word? It's the Lord there in verse 19. That's a word of authority. That is a word that understands his power. That is a word that shows his authority over John. And so even as John sends these disciples of his to ask Jesus the questions of his heart, He's acknowledging in that moment that Jesus is his Lord. And so I don't think that this is a time of unbelief in John's life as some of the commentators and some of the preachers that I have read over this past week would say. Although I will say that those are respected commentators and respected preachers and I respect their opinion. I just see evidence here in the text that this is something that's a little bit different than that. I think that this is a man of God who is trusting in Jesus who doesn't have the benefit of the New Testament to guide his fallible thinking in searching for this more comprehensive understanding of how God is working through his Son. Is he the expected one who will bring deliverance and salvation, or should we wait for someone else? That's the question that kind of appears to John in the midst of these circumstances. And isn't it comforting to us to know how Jesus responds when those questions come to him. Jesus receives the questions of John. Jesus doesn't doesn't stamp around and say, how on earth can you question who I am in, in the midst of all that you've seen and all that you've heard, John? No, Jesus gently takes the opportunity to show the answer to John's question. My friends, I just want to say, Don't be afraid to take your questions to the Lord. Don't be afraid to expose the things which you don't quite have a handle on in your heart in prayer to the Almighty. Ultimately, he is a great friend. He is a constant companion. He is one who will be ready and able and willing to hear of your concerns, to hear of your own shortcomings and to guide you and to equip you by the power of his spirit don't be fearful my friends to express these things likewise in the church don't be afraid to share if you are asking serious questions that you can't totally comprehend on your own this ought to be a safe place my friends where we can come together and see what god has revealed for us and we can come together and walk with christ we can come together and have his word shape us for who we ought to be so if you gather here on Sunday mornings and you are not a theologian, you don't have a good understanding of the Bible, welcome, okay? We're all fallible. We're all frail. We're all fallen. None of us has all the answers, but we know the one who does. Amen. And so we gather to rejoice in his provisions for us. Jesus doesn't chide John. He doesn't condemn him for unbelief. Instead, he welcomes the question. He gives a response that proves he is fulfilling the role Of the one that John had been waiting for. And friends, let's foster an environment where it's okay to ask questions. Let's foster an environment where you don't have to have it all together in order to be welcomed to the table. Let's foster an environment where healthy discussion which earnestly seeks God's guidance on how he is meeting our needs can take place. Because I'm convinced that the one whose truth we talk about here can withstand our questions. I have learned from my own experience that my questions cannot defeat God's truth, and I am convinced that there is a God who has acted in truth in history, and I believe that His truth will stand up to our earnest investigations into what He is doing and whether He has truly sent the expected one who will do what He says in transforming all of our struggles into joy. So let us, my friends, search the Scriptures. Let us come with our questions concerning the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us weigh eternal truths against the findings and claims of modern scientists and philosophers. Because God's truth can withstand our questions. We may not be able to comprehend all of the answers. Because again, we can. We're fallible. We're fallen. We're frail. But absolute truth can withstand the questions of God the frail. If we roll up our sleeves and enter the struggle for truth with our questions and our doubts, then we will emerge from this struggle stronger than we would have had we not. Faith, my friends, emerges from our questions and our explorations. But let me say, be careful who you turn to when it comes to answering your questions. I heard of a father and a son who were out fishing one day. After a couple of hours on the boat, the boy suddenly became curious about the world around him. I mean, he had all day to look around at what was happening around him, and so he began to ask his father some questions. The first of those was this, how does this boat float, Dad? Well, his father thought for a moment, and he replied, I don't rightly know, son. Well, the boy returned to his contemplation, and then a few moments later, he turned back to his father and said, how do the fish breathe underwater? Once again, the father replied, don't Riley know, son. Well, a little bit later, the boy asked his father, why is the sky blue? Again, his father replied, well, well, I don't really know, son. Well, the son started to worry. Maybe he was, you know, overtaxing his dad's time. Maybe he was uh, overtaxing his patience. Maybe he was annoying his father. And so he said, Dad, do you mind if I ask you all of these questions? Of course not, son. If you don't ask questions, you'll never learn anything. And so I say, yes, be careful who you turn to in answering your questions. We must be critical thinkers and not just assume that the credentials are all that is needed to bear the truth. You see, John didn't call out to the Pharisees and the scribes of Judea. These were the most credentialed individuals in his day. I mean, we've already encountered them and their confrontations with Jesus in the book of Luke, but these were the religious scholars These were the ones who studied God's Word day in and day out. They had all the credentials. They had the tassels on their robes. They had all the things to show that they were the prominent ones in the public gatherings. And yet John did not call out to them. Even though they were steeped in religious education, they rejected Jesus and His miracles at every turn. They scoffed at His compassion They implied that his deeds were empowered by Satan. And my friends, I want to tell you, there are a lot of people with steep credentials who will lead you away from the faith that was one for all delivered to the saints. And I know, because I did my studies at what would be so proudly proclaimed as a liberal arts university, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. This is where I got my undergraduate degree. And I remember going for orientation there in Chapel Hill, And hearing the professors gathered with the young freshmen, incoming students, describing how liberal arts was an explanation for what they strove for in the sense of breaking free from the constraints of traditional learning. Breaking free from the constraints of what has always been understood to be the truth. And when it comes to education, and particularly the liberal arts realm of education, my friends, you don't get published by revisiting the truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. Those who get recognized, those who stand out, those who make it to the scholarly journals and get published are those who are advancing some new form of thought. Those who are finding some new way to explain what no one has explained in that way before. And so I even remember at one point, I signed up for a a class on the New Testament this was at Chapel Hill. It, it was with the dean of the school of religion, the head of the school of religion. What I later found out is that the teacher of that class was an agnostic. The dean of the school of religion ultimately didn't even have a, an understanding of whether there was a God or not. In the midst of his teaching assistants, I believe, I can't recall this exactly, but there was at least one atheist. I think two of the, the three teaching assisti- assistants of a New Testament class were atheists, and then one other, was a a Christian, a believer. And so you can imagine that when it comes to studying the New Testament, amongst those who are advancing new thought and pursuing things that no one has talked about before, even with all their credentials, right, all their doctorates, being designated as the dean, even in the midst of that, there would so quickly be someone who would rather lead you astray. And so I say, just be careful. Be careful who it is that you trust the answering of your questions to. Because this, my friends, is how we end up with an education system that sucks away many of our young adults as we send them off to college to live on their own. Without this solid grounding in the challenge of their faith that they're sure to face. And we, my friends, must enter the struggle. We must stem the tide. We must engage with the so-called brilliant minds of academia to prepare this flock to deal with the challenges of the world outside of this place. If God's word is truth, and I've staked my life on the understanding that his word is indeed truth, if his word is truth, then it will withstand the challenges of creative thinking in academia. And we've been waiting for the one who can answer our questions. And in all of my questions, I have found that Jesus is that one. That's the first expectation we have for the one we've been waiting for. Here's the second. We've been waiting for the one who can set us free. John was in prison, you see. He wanted to be released. He wanted to get out of that dungeon. And God had promised release for the captives through this coming 1. Surely this was one of the chief reasons why John was questioning whether Jesus was that one and whether he was going to bring what John had been waiting for because John wanted to be set free. And so do we. We all face struggles with addictions and we wage war with the flesh. We bear the chains of our guilt and the oppressions of our shame. We long to be liberated from it all. We've been waiting for the one who can set us free. Just like John was there in that dungeon. But when John's question comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't just speak his reply. He shows his reply through the things that he does to John's disciples. And they see him working great miracles. The Bible says in verse 21, At that very time, it could be translated, In that hour, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. You see, when John asked whether Jesus was the one we've been waiting for, Jesus didn't just speak. Jesus acted. You ever get tired of folks who are all talk and no action? I think we all do. From time to time. Jesus wasn't like many of the prominent preachers and teachers and ministries in our day. He was not all talk and no action. No, Jesus backed up his words with his actions. And so should we, my friends. Many of us Christians are far too prone to tell others that Jesus is a compassionate Savior. Who cares for their needs while we, as his church, withhold our compassion. By refusing to act in ways that would help the practical needs of those who are struggling around us. And friends, I want to tell you, Jesus shows us that action speaks loudly when we're ministering to others. Now there are some individuals who take that to another extreme and they are all action and no words. Jesus combines the two of those together to show that there is a healthy balance. Where we must be compassionate. We must be the hands and the feet. Of Christ, but we also must be His messengers, proclaiming His eternal truths as we do these things, because that healthy balance is what Jesus models for us here. He pairs actions of healing with words of prophecy to show that He is indeed the one they've been waiting for. And the acts that Jesus carries out here in verse 21, and that He calls for His disciples to report back to John in verse 22, were prophesied in the book of Isaiah. You see, the prophet Isaiah revealed that this coming one would open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, cause the lame to leap like the deer. That's what we read in Isaiah 35. And then in Isaiah 61, the prophet reveals that this one will bring good news to the afflicted and bind up the brokenhearted. That's the Old Testament tie to what Jesus proclaims here. That the poor have the gospel preached to them in verse 22. And there's another part of Isaiah 61.1 that Jesus doesn't call out in his evidence to John. And it's interesting to me that that Jesus would quote these things from Isaiah chapter 61, but he wouldn't include this part of the phrase that's there in Isaiah 61.1 in light of John's current predicament. Because Isaiah 61.1 also states that the coming one who has been anointed by God with his spirit To proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. That's what John wanted, right? He wanted liberty. He was a captive. He wanted freedom. He was a prisoner. Surely that's something that John wanted this coming one to do. Get me out of this dungeon. Free me from this prison. But when Jesus points John to what he's doing... In fulfilling the promises of Isaiah 61 about the coming one, he leaves that component out. Now, John was a student of Scripture. John would have noticed this sort of thing. And there's an implicit message that John gets out of this experience. Because Jesus performs great miracles, and then he sends the disciples of John back to him. And it's as if Jesus is saying to John, Look, you know the Word. You see what I am doing. Will you trust me in seeing and understanding what I do for the things that I have not yet done? And that, my friends, is a challenge for every one of us. As we seek the truth of God, will we give earnest consideration to how this one. This coming one has divided all of history in half. He has worked great miracles. There were over 500 witnesses that he arose from the dead. Many more witnesses who saw him on the cross of Calvary. Will we trust that what we've seen him do, what he has proven he is capable of doing, is enough for us to believe that he will do what he has promised he will do in coming back to take his own to himself that we might be with the Lord forevermore that is the challenge of faith my friends are we going to trust in what God has done and leave the details about what he is yet to do to him as we abide by faith jesus concludes his response to john with this new beatitude he concludes with this final word of instruction about how john should Respond in light of what he has heard. In verse 23, he simply says, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That Greek word translated take offense is an original Greek word that was, that was it was the word skandalizo. You can imagine what word we get from that, right? The, the noun scandal or the verb scandalize. And ultimately, this is a word which in the original Greek carries this idea of causing a person to begin to distrust and to desert one whom he formerly trusted and obeyed. That's what happens in a scandal, right? We hear about a company that we thought we trusted, and all of a sudden we hear that there's some improper transactions that are happening within the organization. Insiders and outsiders alike begin to desert that company. Jesus uses the same word, scandalizo, elsewhere to speak of those who though through stumbling blocks, cause individuals to fall away from him. You see, Jesus is saying to John here. He's saying to you and me as well. You are blessed if you do not take offense at me. You will be happy if you trust in the things that I can do for you and not allow the things which I have promised but have not yet done to cause you to fall away from me. And so, friend I just asked. Do you struggle with unanswered questions? Do you struggle with doubts? Do you struggle with understanding how your present circumstances haven't changed now that you come to faith in Christ? Be careful that you do not fall away in unbelief. He who divided history in half shall one day fulfill all of his promises. And he is the one that we have been waiting And we continue, my friends, to wait for this Jesus who shall return for those who know him by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we gather here as a needy people. We gather here as a frail people. We gather here as those who, Lord, ultimately face a lot of questions because we don't have all of the understandings. And God, we thank you that your truth can withstand our questions. I pray, Lord, that we would be a community which pursues the truth. We would be a body which seeks to understand you. We would be a body which seeks not just to settle for the latest findings that claim to be a disproval of what you have done, but that we would see, oh Lord, how you've transformed History. We would entrust ourselves to the evidence that shows that there was a real resurrection of a real individual in history who has risen to be Lord and King forevermore. And may we, O oh Lord, live with a life of faith. That even as we don't have an answer to all of our questions, even as we can't see the end of how you are going to work These things out that we would live, O Lord, with a faith that says you are in charge and you take my life and you use me. Because, God, you are worthy of this. You have shown your great love, your great compassion. You have rescued those of us who were drowning in our sin. And so let us, O Lord, live by faith. Let us pursue you even with our questions. Let us find you, O Lord, to be the God who is faithful and who will see that your promises come to pass. Thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.